Wednesday Breakfast acknowledges that we broadcast from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Boon peoples of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to their elders, past and present, and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nation peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We recognise sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. Good morning. (laughs) (laughs) It's the 16th of March and you're here with Ella Toombs and Claudia Craig. That's right, listening to 3CR Breakfast and we'll be joined shortly by our newest member, Jacob. Um, So today is the first day of our new team on Wednesday Breakfast. We said goodbye to Alice and yeah, day one of the new team. How are you feeling, Claudia? I'm feeling ready for it. (laughs) Yeah, I'm, I'm here to it. <laughs> Seeing how, how we work as a team and yeah, getting to have a good uh, spread of different issues. I think it's always exciting. I think we've got a really good spread this week. But before that, Ella, how was your weekend? Yeah, very lovely. I enjoyed a nice long, long weekend, as I was saying to you. So um, I went camping up near King River in sort of northern Victoria, which is very pretty. Um, we had a bit of a rough day on the first day. My partner and I didn't book anywhere and I knew there was a free campsite that was really huge up there. So I thought for sure we'll find some space because um, all Airbnbs and everything were booked out. Camping was our second choice this time around. Um, but we got there and the whole probably kilometre strip was absolutely packed oh. with tents. They're all sardined in. So even if we wanted to wedge ourselves in, I don't think we could have found the space. Um, and then sort of wandered up do? to, well, I saw another campsite on the map um, and we wandered up there and thought, oh, this looks much better. There's much more space. Uh, only to be told it's a private campsite um, that was booked out. <laughs> um, so then we were frantically ringing around everywhere and it was very no room at the inn. I thought we might have to turn around. Um, but the last call we made uh, was a good one. We ended up at a very pretty and massive campsite where we had our own space. And yeah, we're not right next to a creek. Um, Beautiful. And, yeah, just had a relaxing couple of days, so feeling rested. Mm, nice weather too. Yeah, beautiful weather. I thought it might storm, but um, yeah, can't complain. Yeah, it didn't <laughs> didn't quite come, did it? Which um, was fortunate for holidays. Yes. And um, how about yourself, Claudia? I ended up with a very quiet weekend. I um, we were thinking of going away, but then decided to do some day trips. But then I put my back out, so we ended up having a weekend at home and um, just doing some very local things. And I read a, read some books and yeah, watched some things on TV. So it was very quiet, but very nice also. We've you know nice to have some family time and just that extra little spread of days. Um, yeah, it makes it a lot more relaxing. So, yeah. Yeah, I think a holiday at home can still be just as relaxing, which we um, all learnt the value of last year when we had no options. I think so. <laughs> Although looking outside when the weather was so nice, I was thinking oh, this is a bit of a missed opportunity. <laughs> but just Having sort a of doing that. Yeah, <laughs> bit of self-talk there, you know. There'll be more days. Yeah, three <laughs> Even though there probably won't be too many more. But. Oh, it always feels like that in March. End of March, yes. the last good day we're going to have. Yeah, I think it is going to be warm this weekend, though. Yeah, yeah, it's looking good. And so what have we got on this morning? Yeah, so 
um, just before we get to the rundown, I'll run through uh, some free tickets we've got to give away this morning. Um, so originally I'd been hoping to speak to the creator of this event. It's called Groove Tunes um, and it's an accessible gig coming up this weekend. Uh, unfortunately, Music Matters got in first, um, but they very kindly offered us a double pass to give away on breakfast. Um, so this is, yeah, an accessible gig. Um, so it's all about music and entertainment um, and also highlighting creativity and inclusivity of the disability community. Um, so it's run by a woman, Dina Basil, who uses a wheelchair um, and she, yeah, loves music and is all about making things accessible for everyone. Um, so it's running this Saturday at the Corner Hotel um, and it's going to include three artists living with a disability. So Arena Zong, uh, Edward Ruzak and St Ergo, um, as well as many other acts, the Groggins and Matilda Pearl. Um, and yeah, there'll be accessible signage, Auslan interpreters, ex- an accessible website. Um, the venue access is with ramps and lowered bar access. Um, and on stage, lyric videos, printed braille tickets and sensory zone and sensory packs are included. Um, so it sounds like a really exciting event. Um, if that sounds like something you'd be interested in, please call into the station um, and yeah, give us a shout. It's the first in best dress today. That sounds very exciting and and really um, great to hear the the benchmark they're setting there with accessibility. Yeah, um, it's something I'm hoping to see a lot more of in this space. It seems to be um, sadly lacking, so it's exciting to see someone making it happen. Mm, yeah, that would be really interesting to talk uh, to the organisers just on that front at some point and just hear about the ways that they um, have been able to make the show accessible for all different types of needs. Yeah, absolutely. And on that note, our listeners should tune in on Friday to Music Matters to uh, yeah hear the interview with Dina. Mm, excellent. Um, and I'll just quickly read out our 3CR phone number if anyone does want to call up for these tickets. So it's 3941. Oh, sorry. My apologies. It's early in the morning. Uh, so uh, 94198377. That's 94198377 if you want to call up for those tickets to Groove Tunes. Excellent. And we may also have some free tickets for a new play at La Mama called Fire in the Head. Uh, Those listeners that were tuning in last week will have heard Alice uh, speaking with the director. And that play is on at the new La Mama uh, courthouse and deals with the life of Kate Kelly, the sister of Ned Kelly, and the deep-rooted truths about gender and violence in uh, Australia. Uh, So we'll have some more details on those tickets later, but uh, stay tuned for that one as well. Full of gifts this morning. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, so we're rewarding our listeners for being uh, loyal to us. Yes. yes. Now, what are we going to offer them in terms of content this yes, morning? Yes, now I think for the show. <laughs> oh, you're up first, I think, Helen. That's right. I'm the first cab off the rank this morning. Um, so at quarter past seven, I'm going to be speaking to Chris Breen. We've had him on the show many times. He's from the Refugee Action Collective in Melbourne. Um, and he's here to talk about the recent releases of refugees Um, So in case you missed it, you might have because the government made the announcement late after business hours on Friday ahead of the long weekend, seemingly rather strategically. Uh, But 13 men have been released from immigration detention. So nine of those were in the Park Hotel in Melbourne, uh, three in the Brisbane Detention Centre and one in the Broadmeadows Detention Centre. 
Um, so it's obviously exciting news every time a um, refugee or asylum seeker is released from detention in Australia. We know how inhumane the system is. Um, but I think everyone's excitement is tempered by a couple of reasons. There are, of course, still many men remaining in detention. Um, and those who have been released have been released on temporary visas. So they're kind of still stuck in this limbo zone in many ways. Um, so, yeah, we're going to hear more about that mm. from Chris. It seems so arbitrary and they were given no warning and no reasons. So, yep. yeah, wonderful, but also just lacking in <laughs> information. Yeah, yep, and seemingly nothing's changed from the last time. And we mm. know the government doesn't have a whole lot of empathy for um, people mm. in this situation. Yeah, and it's amazing in this, um, you know, current climate where we're seeing three million uh, people fleeing Ukraine and, you know, we can sort of see in, in real time the the journeys and the fear and the conditions that people fleeing their country are going through and and yet these individuals who have been through the same things um, are being treated and and not yeah not not being given that same human dignity yeah absolutely i think we've all looked on and horror the situation in ukraine and rightly so um but yeah it does kind of highlight this double standard we seem to have for people seeking resettlement mm. um, people seem to respond very differently when it's a european country or people who are white and yeah exactly yeah it's yeah something uh, really um important for us to all reflect on in Australia, isn't it? Those differing attitudes that we might we might hold. Yeah. Absolutely. So it'd be great to hear from Chris on that. Yeah, definitely. And then at 7.30, I'll be talking with Margaret Anderson. She is the director of the Old Treasury Building in Spring Street, Melbourne, which is the home of a heritage museum. And she will be speaking about the changing face of the workforce and the exhibition Lost Jobs. So that will be really um, interesting to talk to her. I went through the exhibition online on the weekend. That's an in-person and online exhibition. And it was truly fascinating. I learned so much about Melbourne's past and all the different ways that um, work intersects with different areas of the way we live. And yeah, it was a really fascinating um, insight into many things. So, yeah, I'm excited to talk to her and, and hear more about it. Excellent. Yeah, looking forward to it. And, um, yeah, then at 7.45, we're going to be covering the floods again with the interview teed up by Jacob this week. Um, so, as we know, Lismore, the northern rivers and parts of southeast Queensland have been devastated by record high floods recently. Um, so we're going to hear more about the impacts of the floods and the government response uh, from a Lismore local environmental lawyer and incoming Greens New South Wales uh, member, which is Sue Higginson. Brilliant. I think Jacob's going to be back then to interview the president of the Palestine-Israel ecumenical network. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Around eight o'clock, Jacob's going to be speaking with Helen Ranger. Um, and yeah, they're going to be talking about the Palestine-Israel uh, conflict. Um, and I think in particular, the treatment of Palestinian children. Mm. Um, so it sounds like a heavy one, but an important one. Definitely. Okay. And in the meantime, let's ease into the morning with a song. Um, I thought we'd listen to one from the Groggins. So this is one of the bands playing at Groove Tunes on Saturday. Um, And this is Lemon to My Lime.
You're listening to 3CR Breakfast, and we just heard the Groggins with Lemon to My Lime. And now we're going to be talking about refugees and immigration detention in Australia. So on Friday, 13 men were released from immigration detention, nine from the Park Hotel in Melbourne, three from the Brisbane Detention Centre, and one from the Broadmeadows Detention Centre. Um, So this is obviously exciting news, um, but it's hard to get too excited when some of these men have been imprisoned for almost nine years um, and they've only been released uh, on temporary visas. And we still have around 50 men remaining uh, in immigration detention nationally. So we're joined now by Chris Breen from the Refugee Action Collective to hear more. Good morning and welcome to 3CR Breakfast, Chris. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Um, Now, as we were saying, nine men have been released from the Park Hotel, um, 13 around the country. Um, And it sounds like this has both been a long time coming and also rather sudden. Um, So as we were saying, these men have been, uh, some of them, imprisoned for up to nine years. Um, But I hear some of them were given just 15 minutes notice of their release. Um, So I imagine this would have been incredibly overwhelming. Um, Have you spoken with the men? Uh, yes, both of those uh, things are true. So, you know, people have been locked away for nine years. This should have happened nine years ago. These people should never have been locked up. They've been found to be refugees. And they were given a, a short amount of um, time. Um, yes, I've spoken to some of them. So uh, one man, Ismail, just said they were... <laughs> the people just came and said, you're free to go. Like, after nine years, no notice, no reason... Uh, another one of them, Joy, said they came at his prayer time and they had good news. Um, and, you know, quite obviously the the guys are very happy to be free. Um, but they are also saying that, the, you know, the remaining people are no different to them. Um, it's increasingly, you know, cruel, arbitrary and absurd to keep the 18 that remain in the Park Hotel there's a bit over 10 in Broadmeadows, um, 50, as you said, around Australia. Um, there, there's no good reason to keep the rest of them. They should all be freed. Um, and the, the other big issue is now that they've been released is that they are going to need support. So these are people who've been um, locked up for yeah, almost nine years, denied education, denied an ability to work and get skills. They've been institutionalised. Uh, they don't know how things work in Australia, and they were, you know, dumped in a cheap motel on a long weekend. There's nowhere near uh, shops. Um, you know, they <laughs> didn't have Mikey cards, um, and they're entirely reliant on, uh, you know, uh, volunteers to come and help them. They're also just given six months um, uh, bridging visas, departure pending visas. They have to get renewed every six months. They don't give them any access to welfare. Uh, that makes it very, very hard to rebuild their lives. And that's the same situation for all of the um, people who've been released. Um, The vast majority of the Medivac refugees have been uh, released now. It's the same situation for the children and families that came off Nauru. Um, They need, you know, compensation and support, not just to be um, uh, dumped and left to uh, fend for themselves. Yeah, definitely. And um, do we know what support they are being provided with? Um, none, effectively. So yeah. the, the the guys who were released, they got um, $150 vouchers. Um, they're given short-term accommodation, and then they've got to find their own places. Uh, from the other people who've been released, it's, uh, they are almost entirely relying on friends or charity in order to um, get 
housing. Uh, you know, some people have landed on their feet and found jobs, but others really struggle, um, and they should have the same rights uh, as the rest of us. And certainly, the you know the, the remaining refugees um, uh, should be freed. Like it, 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 uh, it's it's just cool beyond words that it has gone on for this long. Um, you know, it's entirely possible that they are slowly being released and the Morrison government just doesn't want to, um, you know, back down. But it, it has a devastating effect on the mental health of the people who are left behind, um, you know, who are already traumatised after nine years' um, uh, detention. And Morrison is increasingly isolated. So the Labor Party has shifted its position and called for the release of all of the Manivac refugees. Um, you know, 30 religious leaders put out a, a video... Uh, accusing Morrison of hypocrisy and calling for their release. Like, there, there just is no good reason to keep them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, we know the Park Hotel isn't a home or even suitable long-term accommodation, um, so yeah. any reprieve is welcome. But as the government have showed us again and again, they really don't have any empathy or understanding for people in this situation. Um and, um, yes, yeah, so I think we're all left wondering why, which um, sounds pretty cynical, but I think we have good reason to think why. So your belief is it's politically motivated? Um, the, for them to be held or for them to be released? Uh, sorry, for them to be um, released and um, quietly released and seemingly without warning. Well, it's, I mean, it, it, it's impossible to, to know for sure what, what the thinking is behind it because they've been given no reason. Um, we do know that there were around 200 Medivac refugees and people who'd come by the courts from offshore. Um, you know, there's still people offshore as well and they need to be brought here too. The situation for them is intolerable. Um, it's, it's speculation on my part, but in the absence of the government giving any other reason and the slow trickle of release, it, you know, it, it does seem... Uh, a credible explanation. Um, in any case, the, 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 the remaining refugees should be freed. Yep, absolutely. Um, and you spoke a little before about the limitations of a bridging visa. Um, these people don't have access to welfare um, or seemingly any support. Um, can you tell us more about the bridging visas? Are people able to work on them or how does it work? Um, there are... So most of the people who were released got bridging visas. There are two people in, who were put in community detention. I'm not sure what the difference is. I don't think they have work rights. If you're on a bridging visa, you usually can work. Uh, sometimes you need to apply for work rights. Um, but the, the bigger issue is that, uh, you know, unlike people in Australia who lose their jobs, they, <laughs> they get no money, zero, nothing. Um, and, you know, people can quite literally uh, run out of food. Uh, not be able to to get to um, uh, job interviews, and they should be, you know, entitled to those things. Um, and not having worked for the last nine years, it's hard enough to get work uh, in the first place. They don't need additional uh, hoops and burdens uh, placed upon them. Yeah, definitely. And unlike the rest of us, uh, these people haven't been in the community for up to nine years, so they don't have the yeah. same support networks. Uh, yeah, that's true. Um, you know, there's. A, I'm, I remember talking to the Brigidine sisters about um, you know houses they went into, 
and people have got literally nothing. They don't have cutlery. They don't have furniture. They don't have the you know the the, the this is nothing. Um, mm. Yeah, and um, I've been wondering about other people who've been released in the past on visas like this. So I think um, since December 2020, we've actually had over 200 people released from detention. Um, And I believe the majority of those were on similar bridging visas. Um, It's obviously been more than six months since December 2020. What happens to people when the bridging visas run out? Um. The, the bridging visas get renewed. Like I, I do think that all of the people are effectively being resettled in Australia just with zero support. So the, the, the bridging visas, um, I'm not aware of any that haven't been re- renewed, but it, it's nonetheless a stressful process and people have to renew them uh, every six months. Um, uh, as I said, there are some people who have, you know, fallen on their feet, and certainly some of the the refugees have been leaders of the protest inside. Um, I, you know, uh, <laughs> coping okay, um, but there are other people like there's, you know, a story of a who have fallen through the cracks. There's a story of a disabled um, refugee sleeping homeless. Um, you know, uh, those sorts of things. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, people are still left in this uh, limbo zone where they're not given any certainty for the future, um, which, yeah, is particularly cruel. Um, All right, we're running out of time, Chris, but um, just before we head off, um, what's the best way for us to show support? Do um, RAC have any events coming up where we can um, petition for the... Freedom of the people. Uh, I mean, probably the, the one the one big event. Uh, it's not just RAC; it's a whole coalition of groups. Is the Walk for Justice for Refugees event on uh, April 10, uh, Palm Sunday, where we expect thousands of people to come together to call for the freedom of the remaining refugees to for, to bring the those on um, overseas. Uh, sorry, Manus and Nauru, or not not Manus anymore. Um, back to Australia and for permanent visas. Like, there are tens of thousands of refugees on temporary visas in uh, the Australian community, and that has to change. And the other thing we'd be calling for as well is to increase the um, intake of Afghan refugees. I mean, Morrison's made a particular point around Ukrainian refugees, saying they'll be top of the pile, and they're certainly welcome, but that, that same invitation should be extended to the Afghan refugees fleeing the Taliban. So if people could come 2pm State Library on April 10 uh, and make that as big as possible, uh, it really does make a difference. Excellent. All right, April 10 at the State Library. Okay, thanks so much for joining us this morning, Chris. Okay, thank you. Thanks. And that was Chris Breen from the Refugee Action Collective talking to us about the recent release of refugees and what still needs to be done. Have you heard it on the news? This fascist growth thing Evil men with racist views Spreading all across the land They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters.
You're listening to 3CR Breakfast, and we just heard the line, you've got a woman. Thanks, Ella. Now, Labor Day has just passed, but how many people spent the day thinking about their work? And how many people enjoying the Moomba Festival realised that the festival has its genesis in the early protest marches that led to the eight-hour working day? A new exhibition at the Old Treasury Building Museum in Spring Street takes a fascinating look at the multiple ways Victorians earn a living and how that has changed over the past 200 years. Lost Jobs, curated by Margaret Anderson and Anne Wilcox, takes its audience into the changing world of work. Jobs in factories, offices and the home, on land and water, and the streets, railways and roads. Gone are many types of employment, but to replace them are many more. Here to illuminate the changes Victoria has experienced is Margaret Anderson, Director of the Old Treasury Building and co-curator of the exhibition. Welcome, Margaret. Thank you, Claudia. Lovely to have you with us. Can you tell us how this exhibition came about? Yes, of course. Um, it's an exhibition, as you said, about changes in, in the work we do and the way we do it. And it's a topic which has interested us for a very long time. Um, if you look at the sort of jobs that we do now and then think about the sort of work that people did in the past, there's a huge difference. And lots of people are interested in that, or at least we hope they are. There seems to be quite a bit of interest in the exhibition. So as you said, the, the title Lost Jobs um, indicates that the emphasis is on jobs that have changed or disappeared. So we're not looking at things like teaching or even policemen who still exist, but we're looking at uh, sections of the economy where large numbers of jobs have gone, like in the factory, or areas where lots of jobs have simply disappeared. Um, and, and that is right across all the sectors, but in particular, if we think about work on the land or uh, on the wharves, for example, whole ranges of jobs have simply disappeared in that time. So that's the emphasis. That's what we're interested in. And what are some of the biggest changes that you can see across all these sectors? Well, probably the main one and the one which would strike most people is the amount of jobs and the number of jobs in the past that involved sheer physical effort, so physical labour. The working class wasn't called the working class for nothing. And, and it's estimated that until after the Second World War, so as recent as that, at least 70% 70, 70 of all jobs in the workforce were what we would call working-class jobs. So they were jobs that involved physical labour. If you think about the sort of tasks that were involved on the land, on the farms in the 19th century, you realise just that the, the physical effort that was involved in absolutely everything before there were any machines to do anything. So if you were working on a dairy farm, for example... It's estimated that maybe um, a very good milker could milk between four, maximum six cows by hand in an hour. So if you think about that and then think about the number of cows that there were, you realise that there were a lot of people who were doing that work. And many of the people who were working on farms, of course, were actually family members, so not even paid. 
So that's that's probably the main difference between the work that was done up until May, Second World War, and now. Almost all of those physical jobs have disappeared. The second really obvious difference is the role of machinery and technology in the workplace. And that has been one of the main drivers of change from the 19th century, really, from the late 19th century through to the 1980s. And that has had an impact on all sectors, uh, from the land to the factory, even to the office. If we think about the work which um, we do in offices these days, now that we have computers, there's absolutely no comparison with those 19th century offices. All those men, there were no women, and pen and ink, that was all they had. So when we think about that, it's it, uh, almost complete transformation, isn't it? Extraordinary. And, and I suppose the, the third thing um, that really strikes you in looking at uh, work in the past compared to now is the way it was so very different. Um, the work that men and women did was completely different. The 19th century workplace was an absolutely gendered workplace. There were jobs that were called women's jobs and jobs that were men's jobs, and they were paid very differently. So that up until, well, pretty much the Second World War, it was accepted that women would be paid a bit over half the rate that men were paid, and they were restricted in the jobs that they were able to do. So that if you, for example, wanted to be a clerk in the public service in Victoria very unlikely that you would have been appointed before the Second World War. You could have a job. There was nothing to stop you, theoretically. You just probably didn't get one. And so most of the women who came into those sorts of jobs came into jobs that were seen as being women's jobs. They were typewriters, um, or they they managed the, the switchboards, switchboard operators, telephones and things. That was what first brought women into the office, but it pretty much relegated them to those limited range of jobs. Now, that has changed a great deal, even though we think that perhaps there's still some way to go. There's no doubt it's very different. We'll come back to women and the gendered uh, division of labour in a moment, but I also just wanted to ask you about some of the more unusual lost jobs that people may not have heard of. You mentioned uh, dairy farmers uh, working by hand, but there are some that are quite unusual. A scoop boy, a fairy tapper, an iceman Mm -hmm. and a tallow worker. Can you tell us what some of these jobs were and why they were needed? Yes, absolutely. Um, the fairy tap is a wonderful title, isn't it? And when we began this, I'd never heard of it. But it is a term which was very widely used in the 19th century and in well into the 20th, and it describes a sheet metal worker, so somebody who shaped metal. And the description um, followed the fact that, that and in the early days anyway, most of the shaping was done by hand using hammers. And the sheet metal workers were capable of very fine work. So they used small hammers and tiny taps. And so they, it was a very gradual process, but the, the fairy tapper came from, from that description, <laughs> which is really rather wonderful, isn't it? Absolutely. The, 
the Dolly Boy. Did you mention the Dolly Boy? I didn't mention the Dolly Boy, but you may well mention the Dolly Boy. Uh, the Dolly Boys were, were young lads who were literally um, in factories where they were making, in, in the case that I know about, making agricultural machinery. And it was a terrible job, actually. They used to put these young lads um, flat on their backs up in the... Um, parts of agricultural machinery and the boys' jobs were to put rivets into holes and then hold them in place with what was called a dolly. And to do that in some of these places, they were lying on their backs um, in, in an enclosed metal space and then a man on the other side would bang the rivet into place against the dolly. And you can imagine what the noise would have been like reverberating round in that metal space. And those kids did that for eight to ten hours a day, every day. And some of the reminiscences from that time talk about the gradual loss of hearing. So industrial deafness, because there was absolutely no safety equipment provided for them, of course. I think that's one of the really interesting things that you think about um, in terms of this era of, of work where there was a range of jobs done but the protections, um, health and safety, were absolutely non-existent. So you had things yeah. like industrial deafness, um, you had children working in labour, um, and then environmental impacts. I was fascinated to hear that all the early factories along the river, the Yarra River, just dumped all their waste. So the slaughterhouse would be dumping blood and fat and offal into the river. And yep. before the car, with the horse and cart, there were thousands of working horses. So the, the sanitary were. implications were. of that were uh, quite significant as well. They certainly are. Yeah. Um, yes. And then you come to the working day, which was a very long one until there was some change that came through workers getting together and forming these early unions. Yes. I wanted to talk about the unions because I thought they that was also an interesting aspect of the um, information that you share in the exhibition, that the early unions were actually quite exclusive societies. I think we today associate them with quite a widespread range of, of working um, industries, but in the early days they were quite exclusive and they were maintaining the privilege of skilled tradesmen, so there were other trades that weren't weren't covered by the early uh, unions. I thought that was very interesting. That's true. Um, the first the first unions were probably more like guilds, really, mm. um, and they were they were formed largely to to preserve um, the tradesmen's status. Uh, it was only as they moved into regulating the the, the working day that they became more recognisable as what we would see now as unions. But you're quite right, um, they didn't spread to other workers until much later, 1880s, 1890s. And probably the, the, one of the biggest ones first um, was the Shearers Union. Mm. Now, that might surprise people when you think about um, rural areas. Now, you just tend to associate them with union activity. But the Shearers Union was huge uh, in the 1880s and 1890s, and it led one of the biggest, or began participated in one of the largest strikes in Australia's history in 1890 when the maritime workers and the shearers and the miners and various others went out on strike, um, huge strike. 
uh, which unfortunately um, also then coincided with the 1890s depression, which was mm. probably one of the worst depressions, if not the worst depression that Australia's ever experienced. And so the sites petered out. But what did emerge from that, as you probably know, was the Australian Labor Party. Mm. Later. So the history and the way it all connects to things we know today is uh, really, really fascinating. And I was also really interested, obviously, um, these early unions, if they were excluding uh, some of the male workers, they were definitely going to be excluding the female workers. But the women then organised their own unions. Um, they do. And they were very yeah. successful. And the T Tayloresses Association of Melbourne was one of the first successful strikes against yeah reduced peace rates so that was they were early examples of of women taking charge of their own lives and demanding um what was right and just they were and they were pretty formidable women too um, and there's a there's a long line of that activity continuing right through um, to the Second World War, so um, campaigns for equal pay in the 1930s and then during the Second World War, there was a big campaign for equal pay. It wasn't successful um, and the women were very, very disappointed by that. But you probably know a little bit about this is moving away from this exhibition, but um, we also have an exhibition which looks at the work women did during the Second World War and some of those women actually were paid 100% of the male white rate. Very few, but mm. some were. Uh, some of the women who worked on the trams actually um, were paid 100% of the male rate, and others were paid 90%. And so although at the end of the war most of those women lost their jobs, um, there was a, a pay decision in 1950 which which gave, awarded women 75% of the male rate. Now, the women were furious, um, and there were some wonderful demonstrations that took place. Um, women who, who refused to pay the full tram fare, for example. Um, if the tram fare was a dollar, they would ostentatiously pay 75 cents in the dollar and, and hold up placards to say that's what they were doing. Um, but it was a step on the way, um, and it was better than 54%, which is what they were all paid before that. Absolutely. Now, unfortunately, Margaret, we've run out of time. I would love to talk to you um, more. There are so many aspects of this uh, exhibition that are so interesting. But I'd like to just finish off by telling people um, where they can see it. So the exhibition is at the Old Treasury Building in Spring Street, Melbourne, next to Treasury Gardens. It's a free exhibition and it is running until August. And you can see it every day of the week except Saturday. So Sunday to Friday, 10am till 12pm in the morning and 1pm till 3pm in the afternoon. And it's a very accessible um, space with uh, stair-free access and welcomes guide dogs and even has a guide about navigating the museum for children with heightened sensory awareness. And you can also see the exhibition online, www.oldtreasurybuilding.org.au forward slash lost jobs. So thank you, Margaret. Oh, I think she must have left us already, but an exciting interview. And I'll definitely uh, check out that exhibition, Claudia. Okay. Thank you very much. <laughs> While we're waiting for our next interviewee, 
I'll just make a mention, um, Ella had already talked about the tickets that um, we've got on offer for Groove Tunes on this Saturday night. And we also have two uh, tickets for Fire in the Head, La Mama, and they're for tomorrow evening, the 17th of March. Now we've had the phone's got a bit jammed this morning, so we've decided to set up a de- dedicated time. If listeners want to call in around 8.15, we'll um, be picking up the phone and it'll be first in, first dressed uh, for two tickets to Groove Tunes on Saturday the 19th, the music uh, show, and two tickets to Fire in the Head at La Mama on 17th of March tomorrow evening. Yeah, that's right. So yeah, call in in the last 15 minutes of the show today to get a hold of those tickets. And um, just jumping back to your theme, Claudia, of work and the working class, I wanted to give a quick plug to another event on. Um, so there's a book launch on tonight at Trades Hall in Melbourne. Um, so the book is The Party by Stuart McIntyre. Um, and this event starts at 6pm, get there at 5.30 for a 6pm start. And it'll feature the formal launch and panel discussion. Um, on Stuart McIntyre's contributions to Australian labour history in general and the history of communism in Australia in particular. Um, So the event will be moderated by Carmel Shute, a former historian and CPA member, and the panel members will be Joy DeMousey, my apologies, a historian at Australian Catholic University, Uh, Julie Kimber, a historian and federal secretary of the Australian Society for the Study of Labour History, Um, and Julius Rowe, a former national president of the Australian Manufacturing Workers Union, along with former CPA member and former CPA member, sorry. Um, So yeah, the event will be followed by drinks and light refreshments and sounds like a host of, yeah, really good guests who have a good background in labour history in Australia. All right, we're going to take a real short break now. Um, when we come back, we'll be talking about the floods in southeast Queensland and Lismore. So stay with us. Common Social Change Library is an online collection of educational resources for those campaigning for social change. It collects, curates and distributes the key lessons and resources of progressive movements around Australia and across the globe. The library includes over 500 resources covering campaign strategy, organising, activist history, digital campaigning, diversity and inclusion, and much, much more. It's free to access the library, so check out the collection at www.commonslibrary.org. Common Social Change Library is a 3CR supporter. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast, 855am. Thanks, Ella. Record high floods in Lismore, the Northern Rivers and parts of South Queensland have devastated many regional communities, with water levels peaking at a record of 14 metres high. Government data suggests that 5,500 homes in the Northern Rivers are damaged and that 2,834 are inhabitable. 
So how are communities faring at the moment and how effective has the government's disaster response been? Joining us now to unpack the situation is a Lismore local environmental lawyer and incoming Greens New South Wales MLC, Sue Higginson. Sue, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Jacob. Not a problem. Now, it's been a couple of weeks uh, since the floods began. I think we were all very horrified when we saw images of just how high the water was. What's the situation like in Lismore now, and how is the community holding up? Um, yeah, look, it's. Um, I can't really paint it particularly light or bright in any way. It's Lismore itself, the beautiful little township, really is the centre of an apocalypse zone. It's, you know, it's absolutely hard to comprehend how savage and fierce um, this flood was and the damage that is done. Um, it really is. It, it, you know, we are two weeks later and, uh, you know, look, you can look at it in multiple lenses, but really in some, I, I realised as I was walking through the town only yesterday afternoon, in some ways, um, the layers, the first layer has is um, um, sort of been unpeeled to reveal the, the depth and level of the catastrophe. And, and in some ways that um, as things start to tidy up, i.e. the giant piles in some areas are being pushed to other areas of um, flood damage and materials uh, and, and then let's be real, some of people's lifelong valuables, their entire lives, strewn across um, the open environment as they start to get pushed to other places, um, you start to reveal a whole other level of damage. And that's when I think it starts to sink in about, well, what what does the road to recovery now look like? Um, And what is the plan? So um, that's sort of looking in the immediate town location, you move the next layer out geographically and you're looking at all of the homes around that area um, and then you go to the next level and look to the region and you're looking at the rural farmlands where crops are decimated, the smell of still decaying carcasses from drowning and then you move into the sort of hinterland areas and in some ways we're looking at permanently disfigured landscapes where we have literally seen beautiful areas slipped off the sort of face of the the, the, the land surface and moved to other locations. So um, things are looking pretty grim. Um, in terms of your the second part of your question, how is the community holding up? Um, it's it is astounding. We have rem- remarkable communities everywhere coming together, holding together, supporting each other. But in no uncertain terms, there are large volumes of absolutely exhausted and devastated and heartbroken people. Mm, I think we were all really blown away just by how many images came out of, of people stacking up their belongings on the side of the street and just all of the mud and... Um, all of the damage done was really astounding to me. And I think we saw a lot of stories as well emerging about community members who were really, I guess, kind of pulling their weight uh, more so than the government, um, which has been a big criticism lately. Um, how does the response of the community weigh up 
against that of the federal government and of government authorities? Well, look, I have to be absolutely blunt and frank here. Um, you know, it, it, without the community response that we had... So, firstly, there was um, the lack of preparedness and preparation for an event like this um, was enormous. The, the absence of preparedness was woeful. And let's face it, it was catastrophic in terms of its capacity to kill people. So what we know is if it wasn't for the community response at 5am on the Monday morning, um, my friends and many members of the community jumping in their tinnies and on their um, kayaks and whatever other water floating devices they had, going from rooftop to rooftop, saving people's lives, um, there, there would have been an enormous death toll. The to there is already a toll, and, and that cannot be understated. People lost their lives. Um, the toll, you know, look, we, being very conservative, I know personally of at least 50 people that whose lives were saved by members of the community on water devices, such as tinnies. Um, one story is 30 people alone, it's stuck in roof cavities, on roof, some very, very vulnerable people, people on medication, people with disability, who literally were taken from their roof cavity and their roof to another roof, a higher roof. So the desperation, the, the chap that did those rescues in his um, vessel, he realised the, the amount of people screaming for their lives and realised if he actually took them to the edge of the floodwater to a higher area of land that he would have to compromise he would have to choose who he could save and who not so instead he found that the highest roof and was able then within the and knew that he probably had an hour's window on that roof which happened to be a local school roof um that there was a window that he could get some further assistance to then uh pick up those people as he was busy delivering them and that further assistance from other people in Tinnies, and then the SES. The SES, I mean, let's face it, there were lots of boats on the water saving lives. The entire fleet of SES boats that was available to Lismore um, in the lead-up to the 5am as the sun rose and people were screaming for their lives, there were two boats for the entire Lismore area that was underwater and inundated. So that gives a, a kind of very real and raw perspective of the lack of preparedness. The stories of that as we break it down and as we step forward of the lack of preparation um, it, it is, is much, much graver and the trauma that could be avoided. So, you know, the lesson here really is in the recovery, and as I say, we don't know exactly what that looks like yet. It's a very... It's going to be a unique and novel recovery because we can't. Things have changed forever. We can't, we can't just rebuild. Um, we know that things have changed forever. We've got a, a new flood height. We know what the probable maximum flood height is. As you said, Jacob, we, we, we've reached that 14 metre. In fact, we actually went 14.6 metres. We know the probable maximum flood level has been modelled at 16 metres. So it's time that we face, uh, and we have to do so very bravely and with support, about how we rebuild and what that looks like. There are certain things 
that we cannot do again because it's just too dangerous. And we need to put community first and we need to understand the science. That, and, and we know now from decades of IPCC reports and other um, reporting of government that these events will happen more frequently and they will be as extreme and catastrophic. So we do need to do things differently. And preparation now absolutely has to be a fundamental central point to how we move forward. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. It seems like you can't really just rebuild a house in an area that's more prone to flooding. I think that's not really the way that we could go about it. And I think in the long term, it's definitely going to be uh, quite an extraordinary effort to to see how we can rebuild this community. In the short term, people have been receiving payments of $1,000. Um, and there was a couple of LGAs that were also given two additional payments of $1,000 each. And I think going back to your point about there being a lot of vulnerable people um, who were affected by these floods, there's also a lot of financially vulnerable people who may not have many savings. And given the sheer scale of these floods, is this money sufficient to help people rebuild? Oh, look, the answer is no. Categorically, no. So, you know, um, look, firstly, firstly, obviously every in someone's pocket who have lost everything, it's helpful. Um, secondly, um, unfortunately, some of accessing these payments has not been as easy as it should have been. Um, I still know of people yesterday who were sitting at recovery centres, we're talking two weeks on, who have lost everything. They, they were rescued off their roof. Um, and, and let's face it, some even of the people whose premises may have been owned in the context that they were mortgaged premises. Um, these people, 70% of homes and businesses in Lismore have been priced out of the insurance market. So 70%, and we think that figure is pretty accurate, 70% of um, homeowners, and I'm not remotely suggesting these were people who outrightly owned their premise, um, so they were still paying mortgages, they may have been they may have been accessing insurance even up until five years ago, but now haven't been able to afford insurance. We're looking at the insurance companies have changed everything, and within the last sort of five years, four years, three years, we're looking at insurances of over thirty thousand dollars a year to insure your premise for some premises. So, some of these people, these exact people, who have done everything right in their lives have been sitting even up until yesterday. They'll be there again this morning at 9am at the recovery centres where some of the services New South Wales and Resilience Australia have set up pop-up tables um, and they will still be trying to work out how to access that first $1,000. So the idea that you have to say who you are, prove it, you, you know, some people did not get a chance to go and get their passport, their healthcare cards, their documents. They're, they're gone from their lives forever. So... There's a separate service to sit down and re reapply for all of those documents. So it's 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 something. It's not enough. There are people in the broader um, region that are not in the right postcode. When I say the right postcode, we've now got a bit of a saying and a hashtag. Oh, I'm just not bloody enough. Um, mm. So some people are absolutely missing out. Yet they have lost everything too. Um, so yes. $1,000, $3,000. But the scale of the loss here is in magnitudes of tens and hundreds of thousand dollars on the individual scale. 
Um, so, you know, we, we again, this comes down to the lack of a plan up front for how we are going to step forward into the future, bringing communities into our changed climate and the awful and catastrophic events that come with that future. Uh, well, let's, let's be real. We're not talking the future. We're talking now. It's certainly a grim picture then to think that there's houses, um, people who own these houses or don't own these houses um, outright, they're still paying off a mortgage. It feels like $3,000 doesn't really scrape the surface when you're looking to, to relocate um, or to, to rebuild an entire house destroyed by a flood. Um, unfortunately, we don't really have a lot of time left, but I do want to ask um, one or two more quick questions. Firstly, what do you think this episode says about how prepared we are to deal with the implications of a changing climate? Uh, yeah, look, I would say we literally have, you know, the, the, the approach is we have put a blindfold on, we've tied our hands behind our back and we've strapped our feet to the ground. That's, that's our approach when you look at um, the predicament that we are in here in Lismore. I mean, I could talk about the fires and actually we, you know, and the lack of preparedness about that. But we, we just, we need to scale this up and we need to scale it up very, very fast. We need to invest heavily. Um, I'm uh, a staunch proponent now that Lismore really should become a pilot, a model, an example of what needs to be done to be prepared. I mean, we are the first real climate-affected, displaced community in Australia, on the, on the mainland right now. Um, so the work we need to do is, is large, but the community here is ready to do that work with the right support and the right belief Lismore has pioneered and the Northern Rivers have pioneered in many innovative fields in the past. We're ready to help the rest of Australia prepare for what it looks like to face catastrophic and extreme events in the face of climate change. But we need whole of government, both Commonwealth, state and local government support to do that. Mm. Um, and we're ready to do it. Absolutely. And in the meantime, what can be done by our listeners to support people um, who have been affected by these floods in the Northern Rivers. Um, absolutely. Thank you for this opportunity. Please know nothing is too small. Um, we need all the help we can get, whether it is through your conversations. Please don't forget it. Please, please keep having the conversations about what we need to do. Um, please use your advocacy um, to talk about climate change and preparedness because climate change is not esoteric. It, this is the human face of climate change. And we do need support. We need financial support. We need material support. There, is, there are two platforms at the moment that are incredible. One is through the Koori Mail. That is an incredible First Nations response on the ground to help our First Nations communities. But the Koori Mail, so that's K-O-O-R-I, Mail. Um, if you Google or search for that, you'll see an incredible story of response and um, recovery. And then the, um, the other platform is floodhelpnr.com.au. So that is Flood Help Northern Rivers. That is a community response of um, Lismore Helping Hand, which formed after the Cyclone Debbie floods. Um, and now the, um, it is Resilient Lismore. So that's floodhelpnr.com. 
as in NR short Northern Rivers. So floodhelpnr.com.au. There's a platform that's been built rapidly for people to support, register and connect with our communities across the Northern Rivers. Any help is so grateful, is so appreciated and we're grateful. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Sue, for your time. We'll definitely pop those links in our show notes on the 3CR website, but all the best from us down in Melbourne with all of the flood recovery efforts moving forwards. Thank you, Jacob. Thanks for the opportunity to talk and thank you to your listeners. Thank you. You're on 3CR Breakfast and we'll be back after these community service announcements. If you or someone you care for is struggling with a mental illness or other disability and you need someone to talk to, you can call the Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are feeling socially isolated, seeking information about mental health or mental health services, or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. So if you're struggling yourself or are struggling to help someone else, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 111 500. That's 1300 111 500. Wellways supports 3CR. Do you have a few children's picture books or footy boots that your kids have outgrown but want to find them a loving home? Well, drop them in at 3CR and put them in the Books and Boots bin. Books and Boots regularly sends pre-loved children's picture books and sports footwear to remote and regional First Nations communities and children across the country. Contact us at Books and Boots or go to the website www.booksandboots.org.au We love a good book. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast. Um, and yeah, as you just heard, we're collecting books and boots at the moment. Um, I've been in the 3CR studio a bit at the moment. We've got a stack of books, but I think we're still in need of a few football boots. So if you do have a pair, um, bring them along. Um, when I was working on reception the other day, we got very lucky. A ex-school teacher came in uh, with about five box loads of books. So we're doing well on that front. Um, And before we move on to our next segment, I just wanted to give listeners a reminder that we do have a couple of ticket giveaways uh, on the show today. Uh, So the first is for Groove Tunes, an accessible gig on this weekend. Uh, So it's been held at the Corner Hotel, uh, featuring acts such as The Groggins, uh, Irena Zong, Matilda Pearl, Edward Ruzak and St Ergo. Um, I've just seen the first round of tickets have sold out. Um, The general admission is going for $61.90. So if you call in first today, uh, you can get two tickets free of charge. Um, So yeah, call in to 3CR, come for the accessibility, uh, stay for the good music. Um, And the second event we've got today is Fire In My Head. So we spoke to the creator of this story last week on the show. Uh, Fire in the Head is a contemporary retelling of Kate Kelly. So that's Ned Kelly's lesser known sister. Um, And yeah, this uh, looks at a lot of modern themes or contemporary issues such as violence against women, 
and the disparity of justice, which are embedded in her volatile and intriguing story. Um, and it also challenges the masculine perspective of the Kelly story. Uh, so I've got two double passes to give away to that one as well. So call up in about five, ten minutes in the last 15 minutes of the show. Uh, and you can call us on 94198377. So that's Fire in My Head being held tomorrow night at La Mama Theatre and Groove Tunes at the Corner Hotel on Saturday. Come back again. I'm just crazy about you, babe. Yarra City Arts and Umbrella Entertainment present Neighbourhood Watch, a pop-up outdoor cinema showcasing Australian films Friday nights throughout March. Head down to Linear Park, North Fitzroy, and catch free live music and films including The Big Steel, Storm Boy and The Babadook. BYO Picnic Blanket, Snack or grab dinner along Nicholson Street for Neighbourhood Watch. To find out more, visit yarracity.vic.gov.au forward slash rediscover. Yarra City Arts is a 3CR supporter. You're on 3CR Breakfast, joined by Jacob, Ella and Claudia. The time is about 8.14. Hope everyone's enjoying their morning. Just a warning for our listeners, this next interview likely contains mentions of state-sanctioned violence and genocide. So if this is something that may cause harm, please tune out uh, and return in about 15 minutes. As the Israeli state continues to enact violence in its occupation of Palestinian territories, more stories are emerging of Palestinian minors being detained by Israeli forces. These children often have their rights stripped from them, with one Save the Children report quoting that children were subjected to beatings, strip searches and abuse. In Australia, three Christian Palestinian advocacy groups are organising a series of webinars that explore the ongoing violence and discrimination faced by Palestinians in Israel, with the one tonight exploring uh, the the Israeli detainment of Palestinian children. And joining us now... Uh, to speak on all of this is Helen Ranger, who is the president of the Palestine-Israel Ecumenical Network. Helen, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Jacob. Good morning. Good morning. Now, we're hearing some pretty grim stories coming out of Palestine. What are some of the stories we're hearing about the Israeli government detaining children? Mm, thank you, Jacob. In any area such as this, there will be statistics and stories, and it's often the stories that stay with you. And I'll start with the most disturbing element amongst much that is disturbing, as you said, and that is night raids. Soldiers burst into homes and children are arrested and taken to facilities where they're often detained without access to a lawyer or family. And the most common charge is stone throwing. And listeners might ask, well, why do these children and why do people throw stones if they know that there'll be a consequence? Well, as you outlined at the beginning, this is a situation of occupation. And one little statistic that I um, heard recently that most of this stone throwing takes place within two kilometres of a settlement, an Israeli settlement in Palestinian territory. So when you see these settlements with their taking over of your land and their taking over of your water 
and um, cutting down of your olive trees and other um, extreme behaviours, then I think you get a picture of the situation. And the soldiers may know that stone throwing has taken place, but they may not know exactly who threw the stone. So there are various um, methods, uh, including psychological manipulation, um, that then are enacted, which furthers the violence. And um, just finally, when I was um, visiting a refugee camp in Bethlehem, last time I was in Palestine and Israel, that night there had been a neighbour where three children were taken away from that house and that was a common occurrence. So Military Court Watch, which I'll detail more about um, shortly, they're an organisation that aims to highlight um, what is happening and we'll be hearing from um, Salwa Duibis tonight and um, she will tell us more, but I'll... I'll be able to give listeners an overview now. Mm. And we we know that there are effectively two legal systems operating under the Israeli government, one for Israelis and one for Palestinians. Could you illustrate this further? How does the law deal with matters involving Palestinian minors? Yes, thank you. We're talking here about the West Bank, that area of the occupied Palestinian territory that lies along the West Bank of the Jordan River. And it's an area that is being more and more encroached upon by Israeli settlements and settlers. So the two systems of control to which you refer are civil law and military law. Now, military law is legal in a situation of occupation, but only for a, um, on a temporary basis. And we're talking here about the longest occupation by force in modern history. So Israeli settlers will be dealt with under civil law in that same area, but Palestinians who are seen as a threat will be dealt with under military law, which is less transparent and with less accountability. So minors, as young as 12, and we're looking at um, about 1,500 to 1,000 each year, will be um, dealt with under this law. Now, finally, um, another disturbing element, they're often transferred then to prisons within Israel. So leaving their home away from family and across the border into Israel where it's very hard for then their family to visit. And this actual detail is against the Geneva Convention, but it continues. Mm, I mean, we can talk about international laws and, and how the actions of the government align with what's been signed uh, or not, but it truly is extremely unethical and extremely disturbing to think that children are being taken away um, in any shape or form. But we know that this is likely just another another arm in, I guess, the, um, the Israeli government's agenda. So how does this align with the, the goals of Israel? Well, the whole system of military law, including the detention of children, fits exactly within the Israeli agenda which is believed um, is overall control of the whole of historical Palestine. And just a short story or a recollection. 
I heard um, Gerard Horton, one of the, um, the co-founder of Military Watch, talk in Australia a few years ago. And he used a very effective way of getting across his message. We were asked to imagine an if, you know, if you were in a situation of enforcing an occupation, what would you do? And he led us through, well, you might do this and this. And then that is exactly what the Israeli government does using soldiers in the IDF, the Israeli Defence Force, to carry out their bigger picture. So occupation involves the dispossession. Is, uh, Palestinians are dispossessed of their land. The illegal Israeli settlements, which, as I said, encroach more onto um, Palestinian territory, then settler violence with the IDF protection, um, the night raids, the children, um, home demolitions, then the separation wall where Palestinian people might be separated, the village might be separated from the agricultural lands, um, the checkpoints, um, the water entitlements, and all those, if we can call them, you know, quite coldly, all those dot points then are what is being enacted um, to align with the overall agenda. It is an effective means of control. And that's why in our network, the Palestine-Israel Ecumenical Network, or PN, we, um, our advocacy is aiming towards a just peace that will benefit everyone, Palestinians and Israelis, Former IDF soldiers, there's a very um, notable group called Breaking the Silence, and they speak out on just what it is like for these soldiers, often conscripted, to enforce these arms of occupation. And many Israelis don't know all these details. And I heard another, just a little quip, which is quite effective. All this because it is very effective and it's actually very cost-effective. For the price of a cappuccino a day for Israeli citizens, all this is going on almost like in a parallel universe across the border in the occupied Palestinian territory. Mm. Something that really surprised me um, is the, the lack of attention. As you said, a lot of Israelis don't know and I don't think much of the the Western world knows either. So what do you think is the ongoing narrative in Western media surrounding Palestine and why is this not attracting more media attention? I see it like this. There are two competing narratives and you'll see that they can look quite similar. The Palestinian perspective might be our people have lived in this land in the past and the present. We continue to be subject to increasing violence and dispossession. The Israeli perspective, our people have lived in this land, albeit in the distant past with increasing migration earlier this century, and that's another political story. We, the Jewish people, have always been subject to violence and after the Holocaust, it was thought that we needed a land to call our own. So if you've got those two competing 
perspective, I see that the international community, including its media, has chosen to focus on the Israeli one. And if you take something up, it often means that then you might ignore, say, the human rights abuses that we've talked about, um, because this is where your focus lies, on the other side. So various reports, Human Rights Watch, uh, recent, very recent, February 2022, Amnesty International report, mm. gives details, including the, the minors and the children in detention. So all this can be highlighted, but then, and I'll come back to this anti-Semitism charge, that then was labelled uh, um, against, you know, the perpetrators, the um, Amnesty International, after their report. So basically, and I can include the Australian government in this, our Prime Minister Scott Morrison, his response was, we stand with Israel. So I see it a little bit as you get um, painted into a corner. So this is the position, this is the narrative that um, you've taken up. And then the media, um, for various reasons, you know, falls into line with that. And can I just finish with um, two other things? What is most disturbing about... Um, anti-Semitism charges recently is this weaponization of um, anti-Semitism as the term is used. So if you speak out against these policies of the Israeli government, you may be labelled as anti-Semitic. Now, that means that real anti-Semitism, which is um, feelings against and prejudice um, towards um, Jewish people, that can often go ignored because you're focusing on this, um, the politics and the policies of the Israeli government. So I feel, and I've, you know, I've got a background in history, I know what anti-Semitism looks like. And this is not that, to speak out against these policies. And finally, um, the issue, another reason that can mean that the media doesn't um, highlight what is happening is this phenomenon of Christian Zionism. And as a Christian, you know, this one is disturbing for me. People take selective verses in the Hebrew Scriptures, our Old Testament, and they see those verses as giving direction and licence for what is happening with um, the takeover of land in present-day Israel and Palestine. And the Christian Zionists, particularly in America, um, have the ear of the government. And, you know, that is why we get so much aid um, to Israel and the propping up of, of that, um, that system with all um, mm. that is going on. Definitely. Well, yeah, um, so Helen, we do have to wrap I up shortly. Yeah. Um, but could you give us a quick 30-second overview about tonight's webinar and where we can go for more information Yes, well, it is too late to book for tonight, so I'll tell you a little bit about the next two weeks in our series. But the best thing, and it's easy to remember, just in your search, put in Military Court Watch. And it's a very good website, and their fact sheet is a very um, uh, accessible document that you can get the overview here. 
But behind all those statistics, as I said, are the individual stories and the experiences um, on a daily basis of these children um, for which we feel so much. If you would like to know more, um, next week's webinar, and this is a series for Lent that we are taking up, so the Friends of Sabeel Australia, um, in solidarity with the um, Sabeel Ecumenical Liberation Theology Centre in Jerusalem and Nazareth, their focus next week is hearing from Daniel Manea, and he's a Palestinian Christian living in Israel, and that is a different situation, but would be very interesting for listeners. And the week after... Uh, the uh, two Palestinian Christians in Australia talking about how they navigate their identity and their their mission as young Australian Palestinians. Fantastic. Thank you, Helen. And that one, it's very easy to remember, if I can finish with uh, for your listeners, even if you're driving, trybooking.com slash uppercase BXMSI. Just think BMX but reversed, BXMSI in trybooking.com, free events, and it would be great to have you join us to find out more. Excellent. Thank you so much, Helen, for your insights today. really appreciate your time. Thank you, Jacob. Great to talk to you. You're on 3CR Breakfast, and that brings us to the end of our program today. Up next is Stick Together. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.